told me this morning, and I hope it's okay to share this, but I thought it was, it was a good message. But she said last week we prayed for her because she's been dealing with her voice, her throat, and she said the pain left when we prayed for her last week. But the, what she's facing now is her voice volume coming back. Why don't we give God thanks and praise? The pain is gone, but the voice is returning. Hallelujah. So, Leah, let's pray now again in the name of Jesus. You can stay where you're sitting. We're just going to stay right there. And, and, Mom, would you lay hands on her? Why don't we lift our voice and pray for her? The, the voice will return in the name of Jesus. Father, in the name of Jesus, complete the work you've started. In Jesus' name, we speak to this voice, commanded to return to full strength today. In Jesus' name, in Jesus' name, we praise you for it. We thank you for it today. Thank you for the healing work you've already begun. Believers shall lay hands on the sick and they shall recover, God. We believe you for your word today. We believe you and we thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Our Sunday school class can be dismissed. God bless them as they go. They're going to have a great morning. And uh, you can be seated this morning. I don't have a text. While there will be lots of scripture this morning, it's not just one that I'm not going to make you stand for the reading of Psalms 118 because that's a long chapter. Today is Palm Sunday. It's the triumphal entry of Jesus a week before his crucifixion. It's like a, a strange turn in the story because he's the most popular man in town one day and the most hated the next. And uh, the world is fickle, by the way. The world is fickle. And uh, Psalms 118 is a very interesting passage. In fact, uh, you might not know this when, you know, without studying it, but Psalms is actually a hymn book, and it's very organized. It's not random. It's very strategic. Um, Psalms 48 through 150 is kind of, it, it's what they call the, uh, the great Hallel, the great Hallel, because every chapter, Psalms 148 through 150, uh, begin and end with the word hallelujah, or praise ye the Lord. It was a command. And uh, so it, it, it is like a bookend to the book of Psalms. It's a, a powerful uh, praise uh, celebration-y type psalm. And Psalm 1 and 2 are kind of unique. They're they're separate off. They're not, they don't seem to follow the same flow as the rest. And, and so they are the beginning. So there's like the introduction and then the conclusion. And then there's five divisions within the books of Psalm, the book of Psalms, as, as you see it. And books one through five, they call it. In fact, some of your Bibles, you might even see that heading from time to time in the book of Psalms. Uh, book one, book two, book three, book four, as you come near the end. Um, and, and, and so as you, as you, uh, you see, the, the Psalms are written strategically and in order. And, and there is a, a, uh, a Psalm 118, which is the end of a passage in book five of Psalms. And the, the, the Psalms 113 to 118 is a collection of Psalms that is sung together. And they're called the Hallel. So it's not the great Hallel, but it's the Hallel. And this psalm is sung 
17 times a year in the Jewish liturgical calendar. It's sung every month. At the beginning of every month, the Jews sing Psalms 113 to 118. The Hasidic Jews, I should say, the, the conservative, strict Jews, definitely do this. And uh, they also sing it at the beginning of different feasts like Passover and Pentecost, the Feast of Booths, and Hanukkah. They sing Psalms 113 through 18. And when they get to Psalms 118, they repeat. There's a refrain at the very end of the Psalms, verses 21 through 28. And they repeat that most of the time only twice. But if they get really excited, they repeat it until they get exhausted. This is Psalms 118. Now, if you look at the psalm, it's a very messianic psalm. And what that means, uh, messianic means it speaks of the Messiah that was to come. And Messiah, by the way, is the, the prophesied hero of the Jewish nation. He's the, the messenger of God. He's the right hand of God. He's the son of David. He's the uh, the one who is like Moses, but better than Moses. He is, he is the great deliverer of the people of Israel, and he will be king of the Israel. And, and not only of Israel, but the prophecies go on to declare that Messiah will actually set to right all that is wrong in the earth. And the earth will be ruled by this Messiah, this kingly figure who will rise to the throne, and he will put death under his feet forever and ever. And so from time to time, you see songs in the book of Psalms that are written, and they're prophetic. They're speaking of this Messiah that was to come and what he would do and what, how he would deliver. So let's, let's just walk through Psalms 118 briefly. I'm not going to uh, stop at every verse, but I wanted to highlight a few of them for you. Uh, the, the psalm begins, Psalms 118, talking about how the mercy of God is going to endure forever. The mercy of God will endure forever. And praise the Lord because his mercy endures forever. And you get to verse 5 and you see where the, the human side enters the psalm. I called on the Lord in distress, the psalmist writes. The Lord answered me and set me in a large place. How many of you would like to live in a large place? I know sometimes I feel like with three kids underfoot, I would like to live in a large place. Because they like to, uh, I don't know, for those of you that have kids, if they like to do this, but mine, they like to run as fast as they can. Like, my living room is like as wide as half of, you know, the, the, the chairs here, this side. And they like to run from, from this side and then jump face first into the couch, full tilt. And, and, and they just run and they jump. And then they like to do contests and backflips. If you come to my couch, I'm, uh, my house, I'm sorry, but there's no more bottom in our couch. You sit down and you're, you just you, you kind of sink to the floor a little bit. It's not that bad. I'm exaggerating for humor. But my kids really love to jump and run and bounce and, uh, and pounce and do all the things. And, and so we, they, they, I would like to live in a large place. So I, sometimes I call unto the Lord in my distress. <laughs> And I'm like, Lord, where's my large place? I'm in a narrow place. But this is the idea that, 
that the, the psalmist is saying, I was in a narrow place. I was in a confining. I was in the valley of the shadow of death. It was a tight space. But the Lord heard me, and he set me in a large place. Verse 6 says, the Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? You hear the, the voice of the psalmist is indicating that there is people that are in opposition to them. There is a people that is in opposition to, to this psalmist, and he's writing saying, Lord, you're on my side, and, and I'm not going to be afraid of the opposition I face because you are with me. Verse 9, he continues, he says, it's better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in princes. And can the church say amen? amen. It's better to trust in God than to put your confidence in presidents, in prime ministers, in cabinet people, and mayors, and, and, it, and they, they do what they do. And, and this isn't an attack on anybody in particular. It's just saying human beings are human beings, and you can only put your trust in somebody so far before they let you down. And so he says it's just better to trust in the Lord. Regardless of who's in office, regardless, uh, 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 don't get too excited when the guy you voted for won because he's human like the guy before him or the girl. They're just humans. And, and it's better for you to put your trust in God than it is in the heart of a king. Verse 10, he says, all nations can pass me about. And then he begins his victory declare, I will destroy them. It was, the, it was the cry of the Jew because the Jew was constantly being oppressed by various nations around them. When David was king, it was the Hittites, it was the Philistines, it was the, the, all the ites around them that would press in and hem them about. And, and, and as Israel continued to grow, it was new enemies that came on the scene. It was the Babylonians, it was the Assyrians, and it was the Greeks and when it wasn't the Greeks, it was the Romans. And the Romans were the ones in the days of Jesus. And, 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 and Jewish boys fantasized as children about killing Roman soldiers in their town. They, 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 they looked at the oppression that came their way, the taxes that were insurmountable, that would break a family, that would drive them into slavery. Uh, they looked at the, the, the mistreatment of the Roman soldiers. If the Roman wanted to kick you as he walked by you, he could, and you couldn't do anything about it. If a Roman wanted to abuse you, he had the right because he was a Roman. He was in charge. Who were you? What were you? You're just a Jew. You're the scum on the earth, according to them. And so they, they grew up with this, this desire, who's going to come and deliver us from the Romans? Who's going to come and set us free from oppression? And, and so the psalmist is writing, I'm going to destroy the nations that compress me about. He continues in verse 13, he says, thou hast thrust sore at me, but the Lord help me. You thrust your sword and I got wounded. You, you thrust an arrow at me and I was I was wounded, I was hurt, but the Lord helped me. And he continues his psalm in verse 14. The Lord is my strength and my song and has become my salvation. Here the psalm now begins to point its prophetic voice towards Jesus. And he says, it's, it's the Lord has become my salvation. It's interesting. This phrase... The Lord has become my salvation. If you were to translate that into Hebrew, it's Yeshua, Yeshua. And Yeshua is actually the name Jesus. Jesus' name literally means the Lord has become my salvation. 
And so the psalmist, without realizing it, makes a declarative statement. The Lord has become my salvation. He literally utters the whisper of the name of Jesus thousands of years before Jesus ever comes on the scene. And he continues in verse 15, he says, The voice of rejoicing on salvation is in the tabernacle of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord doeth valiantly. Now these are big Old English words. But to the Jew singing these psalms, this is like, you, you have to get a sense that this is like a pot that is boiling on the stove and is about to rupture. It's an explosive cocktail of words put together in a psalm to evoke intense emotion. Take a look at this. The voice of rejoicing and salvation in the tabernacle of the righteous was like a declaration of victory and shouting and singing and, and, and energy and just like boom, just excitement and, and fervor and passion. And, and he says, the right hand of the Lord doeth valiantly. This is, this is a, 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 a um, kind of one of those phrases, God is a spirit, right? So spirits don't have hands and feet. But there was this sense that your right hand is always your strongest hand. And there's a little phrase throughout the Bible. You'll see it. This is the son of my right hand. This is my right hand man. We might say that today. This is my right hand man. What they're saying, I can always depend on this person. This person has all the muscle. This person has all the valor, all the courage, all the strength. They have all the good stuff. This is my Superman. This is my Iron Man. This is, I don't know who your favorite is. Mine is Spider-Man. So this is my Spider-Man, okay? Uh, and, and so this is what he said. The Lord, the hand of the Lord doeth valiantly. He's my superhero. He's walking in. His cape is blowing in the wind. His webs are slinging. He's swinging. He, he, he's cracking jokes and making fun of the bad guys while he ties them up in his web. I mean, sorry for the Marvel references. I'm, I'm not a super huge Marvel fan, but the one I like the best is Spider-Man, okay? He's... He's the friendly neighborhood Spider-Man. I just kind of like him the best. But, but this, is, this is the comparison. This is the Jewish superhero. This is the Jewish superhero. The Lord steps on the scene. The hero enters the room, and he's, he's, he's about to do the enemy in, and everybody's jumping, and everyone's excited, and they're saying, the hand of the Lord is going to do valiantly. The hero's on the scene. The monster's going to be stopped. He's just going to stop there. You know, he's just going to put his hand out, and the monster's going to crumble to the floor. This is the hand of the Lord. The, the Messiah has come. He is here, and he's going to deliver us. And, and if it wasn't exciting enough, verses 21 through 28, the, the, the tone of the psalm goes into fever pitch. Like these people are losing their ever-loving mind. Their brain's about to pop out of their head. They're so fired up and passionate and excited. And they said, I will praise thee for thou hast heard me. The thousand and for, for you have to put yourself in the shoes of these Jews. For thousands of years, not hundreds, for thousands of years, the same prayer for the Jews has been prayed. Deliver us. Save us from our enemies. And, and the enemy has changed faces. It, the the anti-Semitic uh, language has changed mouths. It's changed nationalities. It's changed regions. It's changed countries. But it's been the same attack upon these people. And so all of this pent up, they feel the, the same passion in their heart that the Jews in Egypt felt when they prayed to God, deliver us from Pharaoh. That, that, that has layered upon layered in century upon century. And now the Jews of this day are crying out against their own oppressors. 
And so that passion, that inherited passion is, is welling up inside of them. And it literally explodes out of their chest. I will praise thee for thou hast heard me. Finally, God, you've heard me and you have become my salvation. The Lord has become my salvation. The Lord has come himself. He could not send anybody else, so he came himself. He sent himself. He came himself. The Lord has become my salvation. And then the, they don't realize this. this is, they, they sing this, but they don't get it. <laughs> Verse 22. The stone which the builders refused is become the head of the corner. They say that. And verse 23, this is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. We'll come back to that. But I'm, I'm just emphasizing on that they're, they're singing this at a fever pitch. They're, they're dancing. They're shouting. They're going around. And then they say that verse 24. We've turned it into a, you know, a clapping, shouting song. This is the day. This is the day that the Lord has made. Right? They're talking about the day Messiah comes into the city of Jerusalem. This is the day the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. And they, they about, they, their, their voices are hoarse. They're screaming at the top of their lungs. And they get to the key verse, verse 25. Save now. Save now, I beseech thee, O Lord. I beseech thee, send now prosperity. Blessed is he who cometh in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you out of the house of the Lord. God is the Lord which has showed us light and bind the sacrifice with cords even to the horns of the altar. Thou art my God, I will praise thee. Thou art my God, and I will exalt thee. Now, you can get my energy from this, but if you want to hit the lights, Charles, I want to show you Modern-day Hasidic Jews at the Western Wall in Jerusalem singing Psalm 113 through 18. It's 25 minutes long, and I'm not going to make you watch the whole thing. But you'll get the idea when they play that, okay? You'll, you'll get the
good. Now, you can't understand all the words that they're saying because they're reading Psalms 113 through 118 in Hebrew. And they're singing it. And there's this fever. You, you feel the energy of that room. And it's just bouncing. It's pumping. And they're, they're singing and they're shouting because they're excited about Messiah. But they miss something very important in their energy and fervor. Verse 22. The stone that the builders refused has become head of the corner. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Before Jesus ever walked the streets of Jerusalem, the prophets indicated that those who were building the kingdom wouldn't know when he arrived. That he would literally come in their midst, he would be within their reach, and they would reject that stone, but God would take that stone and put it at the head of the corner of his kingdom. Jesus, in the last week before his crucifixion, sends his disciples in Mark chapter 11, verse 2, into a village of Bethpage. And he says to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter, you'll find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. The donkey was a typical beast of burden. The colt was a, a, a special uh, uh, animal that was used to carry and to transport people from one place to the next. And this particular donkey, the Bible says, no one had ever ridden on it before. Usually, a donkey was reserved, a special donkey was reserved and no one was allowed to ride on it for in the event that a king would come into town and then they would allow that donkey to be ridden on by that singular person of honor and, and, uh, and, and display of, of kind of a special thing. And Jesus tells his disciples, there's a donkey that has never been ridden on in this particular town, so go and fetch that donkey and bring it to me. When accompanied by a parade, it signified that a king has ridden into town in peace. The last time we see somebody riding on a donkey through the city of Jerusalem is in 1 Kings chapter 1. David is at the end of his life, and Adonijah, his son, is trying to usurp the throne. He's trying to take over and quietly become king of the nation of Israel. And, and David said to his advisors, he says, we can't let this, we can't let Adonijah get the throne. He's bloodthirsty. He's a difficult person. We don't want him king. He's not the one God wants as king. And so take with you the servants of your Lord and have Solomon, my son, ride on my own mule. Bring him into the town of Gihon and then let Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet there anoint him king of Israel. Then blow the trumpet and say, long live King Solomon. And he shall come in and sit on my throne and he shall be king in my place. And I have appointed him to be ruler over Israel and over Judah. And all the people went up after him playing on the pipes and rejoicing with great joy so that the earth was split by their noise probably singing Psalm 113 through 118 as they, as they traveled along. And Solomon rides into town, not on the back of a horse, 
Riding on the back of a horse would have signified to the people the king has come to conquer with military might. But riding on the back of the mule signified there's no need to conquer but the king, as the kingdom already belongs to him and he's just coming in in peace. He's the king of peace riding in on peace. And he's going to take over and he's just going to sit on the throne and assume his position. And whatever else is going on in the world, it doesn't matter because the king has ridden into town. And, and this was just a confident way of saying, Solomon, I'm the king, I'm, I'm king, and Adonijah, you are not. Solomon is being established as the one to take over, and, and Adonijah has been rejected. He's not the real king. And so what Jesus does is he tells his disciples, he says, I want you to go and get the donkey and bring him to me, and I'm going to ride into Jerusalem on the back of this donkey. And he said this is a, to fulfill what the prophet said in, in, uh, in, in the prophet Isaiah who said, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey, on the colt, the foal of a beast of burden. It was in the same style as King Solomon. And it was the last time, by the way, someone rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. Because after Solomon was king, the kingdom of Israel was divided in, into separate kingdoms. And there was no unified body of, uh, of, of, of the nation of Israel until Jesus shows up. And Jesus says, I'm going to ride into Jerusalem on the back of the donkey just like Solomon. What was Jesus doing? He was signifying, I'm coming in as king. And I'm the king of this nation. But he didn't assume a throne. Interestingly enough, Jesus didn't come with a horse to overthrow the Romans. He came in with a donkey to assume his kingdom in peace. And essentially, it gives the option of the people. Who are they going to serve? Who are they going to follow? Jesus wasn't going to come in and conquer. He was just going to come in and assume a throne. And those who wanted to follow would follow of their own free will. Those who didn't, wouldn't. And it would be no skin off Jesus' nose, so to speak. He was just coming in to establish his kingdom. And so when Jesus comes in, he is the real king, and he exposes the false king. He's coming in as the real king of Israel, and the rest are just fake and not real at all. In essence, this is how Jesus walks into every one of our lives. He rides into your life in peace. Oftentimes, God will approach someone in an hour of distress or some situation in their life that brings them to maybe the bottom of the barrel, and the love of Jesus comes upon them in a kind and gentle way. The message of hope comes to them in an hour when they need it the most. He rides in on the back of a donkey in peace. He rides into somebody's life in peace. Jesus very rarely ever knocks somebody down on the ground and reveals himself. He did that a few times. But in every instance, it was always to heal and to deliver and to save. And while it might have been an aggressive a time or two, most of the time when Jesus rides into somebody's life, he's riding in on the back of peace. 
peace. He's riding in. What is it that Jesus told his disciples to do in Ephesians chapter 6? He says, I want you to put on the shoes of peace that spread the good news of the gospel. The gospel is always carried on the back of peace. The gospel is always carried with the shoes of peace. The gospel is never carried with a picket sign and it's never carried with an aggressive tone in the voice. The gospel of love is always coming with a tone of peace and a tone of love. It's for this purpose that Jesus rides into Jerusalem on what we call Palm Sunday. And while Jesus is riding into Jerusalem, remember, when did they sing this messianic psalm? The first of every month, they sang this psalm, Psalm 113 to 118. At the beginning of Passover, which is, by the way, this week, they sing Psalm 113 through 118. So it's most likely that either they had just finished singing the song, much like you saw in that video, when Jesus enters into town. God's timing is perfect. Isn't that interesting? While they're singing this Psalm 118, Save us now that the, 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 the Lord is going to come. His right hand is going to do valiantly. All of a sudden, in the middle of the song, someone looks over at the, the, the city gate and they see a man sitting on a donkey with disciples waving palm branches in the air and laying their coats down in front of him. And immediately, their brains click. The psalm is being fulfilled while we are singing it. While Because it, it, it's the first of the month. Today is April the 2nd. And on the Jewish calendar, today is Nisan the 4th. It's the 4th of this month. So they have already sang this psalm, 113. The Hasidic Jews have already sang this four days ago. It's likely and it's possible because the dates change every year. It's a lunar calendar, so they never really match up exactly. It's very possible Jesus came riding into town on the donkey on the same day that they sing this song on their liturgical calendar every, every month. And Passover starting, so likely if they weren't going to sing it on the same day, they were going to sing it within the next few days because Passover only starts in a few days. The, the celebrations begin to ramp up. While the, they are singing this, Jesus literally walks, rides into town on the back of the donkey, and they're... If you saw how excited they were there, this kind of explains why the Bible says they took off their clothes and they, their coats and they laid them on the pathway and the streets fill up with people. Palm branches are being waved. Children are singing and shouting and dancing. And when the party is over, the children keep on singing so that the priests and the Levites and the scribes get angry and want to kill Jesus. Interesting. The stone, the builders, the builders, the ones who are building the kingdom, they reject Jesus. And they tell Jesus, Jesus, tell these people to be quiet. Tell these people to pipe down. And Jesus said, if these keep their peace, the very rocks are going to open up their mouth and give God praise because this is the day the Lord has made. Today is the day the appointed Messiah has arrived in town and the hand of the Lord is about to do valiantly. The hand of the Lord is about to do a wonderful thing. Now in their brains, in their minds, they're thinking Messiah's come. King has arrived. Great. He's going to deal with them Romans. They begin to sharpen their swords. We're going to take care of these Romans once and for all. We're going to kick them out of our land. And, and, and they all knew how corrupt the religious system was. 
So they said, great, Jesus is going to take care of that too. And by the way, he's going to do it with our help. Oh, man, this is exciting. We're going to get our palm branches. After we're done here, guys, we're going to go home and sharpen our swords. We're going to get ready because Messiah is here and the kingdom of God has arrived. So they sing the song, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who's come in the name of the Lord. The word Hosanna means save now. Save now. And in their minds, they're thinking, save us from the Romans. Save us from the oppression. God, you're going to give us a large space. You're going to open up our territories. You're going to expand our borders. It's the prayer of Jabez. Open up the, the, the windows of heaven and expand my borders, God. Enlarge my territory. This is what they were praying for. This is what they were hoping for. And the palm branches go in the air and the dancing starts. Uh, and the garments get laid down in front of Jesus. And the first thing Jesus does is go to the temple. Oh, this is it. Jesus is going to rally us to fight the Romans. Jesus walks into the temple and the Bible says... He cast all them out who sold and bought money in the temple and overthrew the table of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves. And he said unto them, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple. They prayed, Save us! Save us from the Romans. Save us from oppression. Jesus goes to the temple and says, I'm going to clean up the house of God. They prayed, save us. And Jesus didn't whip out a sword and attack the first Roman soldier he saw standing on the roadside. No, Jesus went right into the temple and overthrew the table of the money changers. See what was going on in the temple is the temple decided that they were going to create their own currency. And so when you came to temple, you had to pay temple tax. You had to pay your tithe, your offering, your temple tax. But you couldn't pay it with currency that you had in your pocket. You had to pay it with temple currency. Well, temple currency had to be bought. Like you go to Pickering Town Center and you go to that little currency exchange place. And, and you can't get currency for free. you got to pay a service fee. And so the temple, not only, not only was the... The, the, the money not equal like it is today. They're, you know, the, the dollar is different. You have to pay more in Canadian dollar to buy U.S. dollar, that kind of thing. But then there was a service fee on top of that. And the temple was not just taking their tax. They were taking their tax plus. Not only that, when you, when you exchanged your money, let's say you were, you were coming in from uh, Syria. You're coming in from far, far away. It wasn't feasible for you to carry a lamb and keep it spotless all the way to the temple. You come to the temple to offer sacrifice to the Lord. Well, you can't just offer anything, and if your lamb breaks his foot on the way down, your lamb's as good as, yeah, it's, it's lamb chops. It's good food for the fire. It's, it's no worth in the temple. They won't sacrifice that to the Lord. So most people came and purchased their sacrifice in the temple. Well, you know what it's like. When you eat food in an airport and in, 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 in Canada's Wonderland and all that, you know, a slice of pizza that costs you three fifty is costing you twelve fifty, right? And you look at them and say, How in the world can you charge for ice water? Right? It's the same principle. 
So not only were they extortioning the, the, the produce, but oftentimes the priests would take, in the extreme case, would take the lamb the man bought and said, okay, we'll take it back and sacrifice it and go behind the curtain, bring that same lamb back out and re resell it to another unsuspecting person. So here comes Jesus, and he comes into the temple and knows what's going on in the temple because he's God, and he starts throwing the place over. The one, one passage says he braided a whip as he was walking in and began to crack the whip and kick people out of the temple. And then on, on top of that, he had the audacity to invite the lame and the blind into the temple, which if you know any of your Jewish history, the lame and the blind are not allowed in the temple. That's why on, in Acts chapter 4, you see the, the lame man sitting at the gate beautiful at the hour of prayer. He was sitting at the gate because he wasn't allowed in. He got as close as he could to prayer meeting because he wasn't allowed in. So Jesus shows up at the temple. He kicks out everybody who's doing it wrong. And he invites the people that weren't welcomed into the temple and healed them in the temple so they could be qualified to worship God in the temple. He said, my house shall be a house of prayer, not a den of thieves. What's he doing? Jesus is addressing the real problem. The real problem is not your oppressors. The real problem is not what's going on on the outside coming in. I'll put it into the 21st century. The real problem is not our Hollywood society. The real problem is not our government. The real problem is not whatever kind of oppression or persecution may come at the church for the things that we stand for. It will never be the problem. The problem will never be the people on the outside putting pressure on the inside. The problem is always, is your temple a house of prayer for all nations? The people sang the song, Jesus save us, and he came in and didn't overthrow the Romans. He overthrew the corrupt practices within the temple. Jesus is going to deal with the problems. He's got to start dealing with the corruption inside your heart and inside my heart. See, Jesus didn't come to wage a war against Rome. He came to wage a war against sin. And that prophecy of the Old Testament in Psalm 118 that says the right hand of God has come to save. Jesus arrived as a superhero, but he, he came in a way that they could not receive him. He came in a way where they would reject him. But even though the builders rejected him the Bible says God made him the chief cornerstone because when it came when push came to shove Jesus came into the temple and, and, and came up against those who were perverting the use of prayer and he said this is now going to change because we're going to treat the house of God with respect we pray the prayer Lord save us save us Save us. And we need to realize that Jesus came to save us not from the oppressive outside, but he came to save us from the sin that is inside. I want you to know this morning there's no person in this room, there's no person on planet earth that isn't, uh, that isn't outside of the realm and the consequence of sin. Sin is, gets a nasty rap. It, it really, literally, the, 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 sin, the word sin in Greek and in Hebrew literally means to miss the mark. 
like you've aimed at the target and you've missed. And that's literally where everybody's living. We're all aiming for the mark in our life in some area. You may be aiming for a relationship, but if you're not doing it God's way, you're missing the mark. You may be aiming for, for promotion and work, but if you're not doing it according to the word of God, you're going to shoot and you're going to miss. And that Bible calls that sin. You've missed the mark on God's standard. God has a standard. And what gives God the right to set the standard? He's the creator. It's the same right that Apple has to say this is how you use your iPad. And you can use your iPad as a cutting board if you want to, but you're going to destroy what the what the product was meant for. You can say this 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 particular product's identity is not a, a, a computer device, but it's actually a cutting board for vegetables and fruit, and you're going to destroy the product. When we take the product, that's us, and we put it in the context of what we were not created for, and we use ourselves and our lives in a way that doesn't align with the Word of God, we get out of the user manual, and we get into our own territory. And so the Bible says everyone has sinned. Everyone has gone, taken the product and put it in the wrong place. We put it in the wrong pattern and we've made the mistake. Sometimes the Bible uses the word trespass. You, do you know you could be walking on a field and someone can come up to you and say, hey, you're trespassing on my property. You go, oh, sorry, I didn't know. I didn't see a sign. It doesn't matter. You still are. You got to get off my property. Guess what? You've sinned. You trespassed. You didn't know you were trespassing on someone's property. It was unknown to you, but you were still guilty of, the, of trespassing. And if you didn't leave or make amends, then you could get in big trouble. It's the same with God. Just because you don't know something's a sin doesn't make you less guilty. It just means you were trespassing without knowing. So we've all sinned. We've either done it knowingly or unknowingly, whatever the case is. And, and we all have this mark in our life. And Jesus said, I didn't come to save you from your oppressors. I came to save you from yourself. I came to save you in your sin. And so when Jesus came, he was nailed to a cross to take the place for my sins. Colossians 2.13 says you were dead because of your sins and because your sinful nature was not yet cut away then God made you alive with Christ for he forgave all our sins he canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross when I missed the mark Jesus took the mark in his hands and in his feet and on his head and on his back and on his face he bore the mark that I missed he allowed the mark that I missed to be placed into his hands and his feet and in his side. His blood was spilt so that mine could be preserved. He was oppressed so that I could be set free. Jesus did come. And by the way, he did win the battle valiantly. He did win the battle with all power because when he rose from the dead, he said all power in heaven and earth is given unto me. I have risen victorious over the chief enemy and it's not Rome. It's sin. It's sin. He was pierced for our rebellion. He was crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so that we could be healed. And all we have left God's path to follow our own, yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. Can we stand this morning? What is our response to sin? The Bible says we need to repent. Repent means to turn around and go the other way. Acknowledge you're going in the wrong direction. Turn around 
and go in the right direction. Our repentance should be followed up by baptism. Jesus said in Luke 24 that repentance and remission of sins needs to be preached in his name among all nations. So when Peter stood up on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, the Bible says he said, when they said, men and brethren, what shall we do? Peter said, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus for the remission of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Your first step is repentance. Your second step is baptism. Your third step is receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit. This morning... We're going to come around this altar and this table because we're going to partake of what the Bible says is the the Lord's Supper or communion. We're celebrating the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus today. And he's entered into Jerusalem today, as Palm Sunday, he entered into Jerusalem in that fever pitch celebration. And they, they all got on board and started raving their palm branches and celebrating him as king. And this morning we're going to Take a bit of a different tone. And we're still going to celebrate him as king. I think we should still celebrate and rejoice this morning. But we're going to remember what he be- how he became king. He became king by surrendering his life on the cross. When you partake of the bread this morning, and I encourage everyone, as we're going to pray for a few minutes before we partake, and just search your heart, repent of any sin in your life, anything that's not right with you and God, just take some time and make it right here this morning. It doesn't have to be long and complicated. Repentance is pretty easy. When we partake of the bread, we're remembering that his body was broken for us, much like the bread that we're going to take is broken. When we partake of the grape juice, which is fizzy, by the way, when you drink it, you don't go, oh, no, they're actually serving wines there. No, it's just fizzy grape juice. When you you partake of it this morning, you're going to drink that and remember he shed his blood for our sins. He spilt his blood so that, that, that our sins could be covered. The marks that we made against him, he took himself on the tree. Hallelujah. And his, blood, his back was, was whipped and scarred so that we could be healed this morning. Before we, we do that, partake of the Lord's Supper, I want to encourage you to take some time to pray. And I've asked you to stand, and I'm wondering if you'd make your way down to the front here this morning. We're going to sing just a song, and you can follow along, sing along. But I encourage you to search your heart and and make your heart right with God. Repent of any sin in your life. And then we're going to partake of the Lord's Supper down around the front here today. We're going to partake of communion. If you want to participate, you're welcome to do that. Hallelujah. But we're going to take a moment to pray and surrender ourselves to the Lord. Thank you, Jesus. We need you, Lord. We surrender ourselves to you, Jesus. Everyone is welcome at the table. Thank you, Jesus. There is a place where mercy reigns and never dies. There is a place where streams of praise flow deep and like a flood comes flowing down 
you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Brother Garfield, if you could open that the, the lid there. And if you just want to come as we, we're going to sing again another little song. And while we do, just come and collect your crackers and juice. And those of you that want to partake in communion, we're going to do this together this morning. And just take a packet. One packet per family should be good. Whatever you need. But just come and collect while we sing this again. Search me, oh God. Jesus. As they were eating, Matthew 26, 26, Jesus took some bread and blessed it. Then he broke it in pieces, gave it to his disciples and said, take and eat it for this is my body. While we take this and eat it this morning, let's remember that we are we're partaking of Jesus's body, not literally. It's symbolic of his brokenness. But it's also symbolic of something else. This, the bread represents the body, the, the body of Christ. And that we each hold a piece. The Bible says that the church is the body of Christ. And while we're all partaking of the same bread this morning, let's remember we're part of the same church. We're brothers and sisters. We're eating at the same table. We're eating a meal together this morning. And there's fellowship involved in that. There's community involved in that this morning. So let's take this and remember that he was broken for our sins this morning. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, we thank you for the brokenness you took so that we could be whole. Your body was broken so that we could be united. Your body was pierced so that we could be whole this morning. Your body was bruised so that we could be healed and given peace today. We thank you for it. We praise you for it, Lord. We give you honor. We do this to remember how you won the victory. You didn't win the victory by military conquest, by protests, and by angry words, but you won the victory by surrendering yourself to the will of God. And we surrender ourselves today to your will to do what pleases you in Jesus' name. Amen. Then he took the cup and he said, oh, I lost my scripture. 
He took the cup of wine and he gave thanks to God for it. And he said unto them, each of you drink from it, for this is my blood, which confirms the covenant between God and his people. It is poured out as a sacrifice to forgive the sins of many. This cup is not the blood of Jesus, but it represents what he did. He shed his blood, he said, to confirm the covenant between God and his people. This reminds us that God always keeps his promises. This reminds us that the Bible says he was bruised for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. With his stripes were healed. The stripes on his back were taken for our healing this morning. God keeps his promises. God keeps his promises. If you have sins, the Bible says to confess them and he'll forgive you. When you're baptized in Jesus' name, the blood covers your sin. You take on a new name. You take on a new covenant. And he shadows over you, shadows over you, and covers you. So let's drink this in remembrance of what he did. Thank you, Jesus, for your blood. Thank you for shedding it on the cross for us, Lord. We praise you. We love you, God. We praise your name, Jesus. We thank you for what you did for us, Lord. Thank you for dying on the cross for us. Thank you for shedding your blood for us this morning. We praise you. We thank you for the covenant, the promises of God that you made for us. Lord Jesus, we worship you today. We magnify you, Lord. We bless your name. You are so good, Lord. Thank you for covering our sin. Thank you for shielding us from the penalty of sin and taking that, that price for us, God. Instead of a conquest against man, you took a conquest against our sin and surrendered your life. We surrender ourselves to you in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. The Lord bless you today. You're dismissed. Greet one another. Part of a meal is fellowship, so take some time and...